I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. In December of 1988, Lamar Hunt made a phone call and a hire that changed not only the football world here in Kansas City, but may have changed the National Football League world as well. That's when he decided to hire Carl Peterson as his president, CEO, and general manager of his franchise here in Kansas City that was not doing well on the field or off the field. Carl Peterson came in, immediately hired Marty Schottenheimer, drafted Derek Thomas, and as they say, the rest is history. Here's my conversation with former Chiefs GM, CEO, and President Carl Peterson. I want to know the first conversation you had with Lamar Hunt. I've always found that to be kind of fascinating for me. I've always wanted to ask you, when that phone rang for the first time and Lamar's on the other end and says, Carl, I want to talk to you about running the Kansas City Chiefs, what was, what was your initial reaction? What was that conversation like? Well, my initial reaction was uh, remembering the first uh, time or first few times that I met him at NFL meetings. I was obviously involved with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles for seven years, and I went to each of the meetings as the director of player personnel uh, uh, and with Dick Vermeil. But, um, you know, when I met Lamar, he was really uh, the most modest, humble individual I've ever ever been around, and uh, they would have these... uh, lavish cocktail parties after the meetings uh, by CBS or Fox or whomever. And uh, the first time I ran into him, he was literally standing up against the wall, and um, I kind of bumped into him, and I, I excuse me, and, and he said, uh, not a problem. He says, my name's Lamar Hunt. Uh, what's your name? And I said, Mr. Hunt, I know who you are, <laughs> you know, representing the Kansas City Chiefs. And um, so when he called, you know, I was uh, certainly uh, – taken back but I uh, uh, wanted to talk to him he uh, he said listen I'd, I've got a concern about my franchise we just haven't done well in a number of years and would you come out and take a look at it and give me your opinion of what you see so I said hey I'd be uh, flattered and honored to do that I was living in South Jersey at the time in Philadelphia area and um, I did and I'm glad that I did. What were you doing from the time the USFL ended in like 85, 86 to the time you took over at the end of 1988? Well, the last uh, year of our USFL, we were the Baltimore Stars. Mm-hmm. We had to move out of uh, Veterans Stadium because obviously the league was moving to the fall and Veterans Stadium was hosting both the Philadelphia Phillies uh, and the Philadelphia Eagles. There wasn't any room for us, so we moved to uh, Baltimore. But I'm still living and... and uh, we have offices in Philadelphia and commuting down to Baltimore. Um, when the uh, litigation came out, and unfortunately uh, for the USFL, they won the litigation, proving without a doubt that the, the NFL was a uh, in violation of the Anti-Sherman Act Act regarding a antitrust. Uh, but the damages came out. One dollar trebled. Uh, we knew that the league was probably going to go down. The owner at that time now was Stephen Ross. He had purchased the uh, Baltimore Stars uh, as we went into the litigation from my original owners, uh, which included myself. Um, and he uh, he said, listen, you guys have done a great job here in Baltimore. 
Baltimore wants an NFL team. They had lost their Colts a few years earlier. The mayor, William Donner Schaefer of uh, Baltimore, desperately wanted an NFL team. He said, I want you to stay on and pursue an expansion team in the NFL for the city of Baltimore and for the Stars. So I did that for about another year and a half. And um, unfortunately, uh, the NFL was looking at other places. So then I uh, left and became the... uh, came into the media business. I was the president CEO of something called Philly Sport Magazine, uh, sort of a regional Sports Illustrated. Uh, we actually started a second one, Boston Sports Illustrated. But it uh, featured uh, cities that had all four professional sports in it, the NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and professional football. Uh, so we, uh, I did this for, oh, probably another year and a half, and that's what I was doing when Lamar called me. Um, I would share with you in that period, I did interview uh, two or three uh, opportunities in the NFL, um, Dallas Cowboys, uh, the New York Jets, the San Diego Chargers. But frankly, uh, nothing really looked to me uh, to be the right move if I was going to get back into it. And uh, Lamar's call was very intriguing because obviously his reputation preceded him how he treated his employees and so forth. An exceedingly loyal person, as mm-hmm. you probably know, and maybe that was one of the reasons that the Chiefs uh, were not doing well over the past uh, basically 16 years. So what was it that convinced you to come to Kansas City? Like, What was his sales pitch to you where you, you had those other three opportunities that you interviewed for, but this was the one that kind of hit home for you? Well, it began and ended with uh, the ownership, Lamar Hunt. Um, uh First of all, he had me uh, look at the uh, the Chiefs. Uh, I came into Kansas City undercover. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name was Bob Tomasi, who at that time was the, the CFO for the Chiefs and stayed at the uh, downtown uh, Marriott. Uh, went out to a game uh, on a Sunday, uh, stayed a Monday, Tuesday to look at, uh, frankly, uh, the records, the books, so forth, uh, financial aspects of where the where the league or team was and uh, then met again with Lamar in in New York um, when the uh, Chiefs played at the Jets excuse me at the Giants Giants Stadium and could drive up there from my home in Cherry Hill New Jersey um, so I saw him a couple times and then then we met uh, in Chicago and uh, he said uh, what do you think I said, I'll be candid. Uh, in my opinion, your franchise is fractured. I said, the, the front office doesn't like the uh, player personnel people who don't like the coaches who don't like the players, and there's no trust whatsoever. Um, I said, uh, it's going to take a lot of fixing. He said, how can you do that? I said, well, I'm not trying to be egotistical, but I think you need to have one person, one voice. So... If you want me to do this, I need to be the president, GM, and CEO. I said, uh, uh, I plan to surround myself with some talented people, but I think we have to go in one direction because for the last 15, 16 years, you've been struggling, and I think they had uh, five or six head football coaches in that time. Uh, I said, you can't just keep firing the football coach. It's not always his fault. It's it's a sum of all the parts. And... Um, he said, uh, would you, you mind if I think about that? And I said, Mr. Hunt, take all the time you want. It's your franchise. 
And uh, he called me back uh, within 24 hours and said, okay. He said, uh, which entailed, you know, a tough decision for him to say goodbye to uh, a CEO, uh, general manager, and a president. Uh, but um, for me, because he said, look it, I'm going to hire you. And he said, I have a very simple administrative philosophy. I try to hire the most talented people I can, give them a direction, and then I get out of the way and let you do what you do best. He said, I live in Dallas, Texas. You'll be in Kansas City. He said, I'm not going to look over your shoulder every day. He said, uh, I've done my research on you. I think that you know what you're doing and how to do it. You've had great experience both in the NFL and something called the United States Football League uh, to run the entire show. And so that's what we're going to do. And uh, I said, you know what? I think you're the perfect boss. <laughs> I'm your man. <laughs> yeah. So were the Chiefs ever in danger of maybe moving out of Kansas City if you didn't come over? You said it was fractured and nobody was going to the games. I mean, like, was it in danger of ultimately moving? You know, I, I don't know. I obviously wasn't there uh, during that time. Um, uh, years before when I was coaching and then running uh, the personnel department for the Philadelphia Eagles, we played the, the Chiefs a couple times uh Preseason games, uh, certainly I noticed, as everyone in the NFL, a magnificent 78,000-seat stadium that was about one-third filled. Um, but uh, I, my sense is no. I think uh, Lamar, you know, he made a commitment to Kansas City some years before. He did his homework. He knew he couldn't stay uh, with the uh, Dallas Texans mm -hmm. in the old AFL in, in Dallas. And uh, Kansas City was his choice, and, and it was a good choice. And uh, I think he just was looking, obviously, after a lot of frustration for a change that would bring back the pride of the Chiefs to Kansas City, to the community, to the Hunt family. How, uh, you know, w when you took the, the job, obviously you have the press conference and you meet the media. How much has it bothered you that people said you had this five-year plan to win a Super Bowl here in Kansas City? Because Bob Moore has given me those tapes. I've listened to those tapes. It's never mentioned. And that has become like one of the biggest perceptions for you, that you were going to win a Super Bowl well, in five years. Well, it was actually a five-year Super Bowl plan, and I had a four-year contract. Oh. <laughs> so that meant that I would get to my second contract. Right. Um, no, frankly, you know, Lamar asked me, uh, how long do you think it would take? And I said, well, Lamar, I, I was with Dick Vermeil, uh came to uh, Philadelphia in 1976 from UCLA. Um, they had also been down hadn't had a winning season in 15, 16 years. They were a, a very, very uh, terrible NFL franchise. And I said, and in five years, we were in the Super Bowl 15. And so, I, you know, I think that's a realistic figure. <laughs> but uh, we're certainly going to try to do it a lot, lot faster. And I said, the first part is uh, we've got to win on the field and off the field. And... Uh, uh, I said, I need to get busy and hire a head football coach and uh, make sure he's the right one. Give him all the things he needs to win, players, uh, staff, facilities, an environment that, that uh, is conducive to winning Arrowhead Stadium, mm -hmm. filling Arrowhead Stadium. Um, and then uh, we'll see where we are. But um, it was, it was a, a, a lot of work, a lot of fun hired a lot of talented, bright people uh, from the onset, uh, retained a few of, of the uh, 
previous chiefs um, administrative staff. Uh, Denny Thum was it was a, a great uh, find and became my right arm on the uh, uh, front office part of it, and uh, brought in some people that that were uh, bright. I think not afraid of new ideas, how to build a fan base, and we hit the ground running. And obviously, uh, selecting Marty, uh, who I had known for twenty years. Marty coached the linebackers at the New York Giants when I was coaching the tight ends and wide receivers for the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, we played twice a year, obviously, in the mm-hmm. NFC East. And in our first um, two years, we won four games and five games, nine games. Four of those wins were against the Giants. <laughs> I never let Marty forget that. Who's the better coach? That's right. Yeah. Anyway... Um, but I interviewed a number of people. But when he got fired at um, Cleveland, and uh, what a great mistake by Art Modell, um, he called me, Marty did, and he said, look it, I know you're looking for a head football coach. You're in the interview process. I'd love to meet with you. And I said, uh, absolutely. So uh, we met twice, and then uh, for me it was uh, not a difficult decision. I was looking for a proven, experienced playoff winning head football coach uh, in the NFL and he fit the the criteria and uh, you know he probably did his finest job of coaching at Cleveland his last year when he got fired they made the playoffs with a third string quarterback by the name of Don Strzok mm. and uh, uh, I think one of the advantages if I had an advantage uh, specific to building a, a program an NFL program is that I coached in the NFL. I came as a coach first. So I looked at things like a coach, and then I went into the player personnel part of it and and ran the player personnel department. So I also looked at it as a scout. And then, frankly, in my uh, uh, four, five years in the United States Football League as the president, GM, CEO, I got a chance to do all the other aspects, the business, the marketing, and sales, and so on. So... Uh, all of those things really helped me, and I think, frankly, we're impressive to Lamar. Did you want Dick Vermeil right away when you came here? Was that your first your first choice? Ab- absolutely. And uh, uh, Dick, of course, had been out of coaching now for uh, probably at that time about ten years. He was uh, doing uh, broadcasting mm-hmm. uh, the college games with Brent Musburger, and really liked it. And so he's the first call I made. I said, "Look, I'm looking for a head coach. Are you ready to get back into it?" And he said, you know, I, I really appreciate it, Carl. He said, but um, I know I'm not ready. He said, I'm really enjoying the broadcasting with uh, uh, Brent. And I said, okay, well, at the minimal, I want you to come to Kansas City every uh, preseason and do our color analyst for our preseason games. And he said, you know, I'd like to do that. He said, I kind of like to keep my foot a little bit in the NFL. And that was the beginning of, of a, a pretty – Great relationship again. People might remember he was he was our color broadcaster with basically um, Roger Twybell for uh, six seven years mm-hmm. uh, of the first uh, six seven years that I was with the Chiefs. Did it crush you when he took the Rams job? <laughs> Crushed me, shocked me. He called me and he said, "Okay, I took the job." And I said, "What do you mean the job?" He said, "The St. Louis Rams." I said, "The St. Louis Rams." I said. Right state, wrong city. What the hell are you doing? Anyway, 
course, I had a coach under contract at that time. Yeah. Marty and, was uh, still the coach, right, that year? Was 96-ish or something? Uh, yes, yeah. that's correct. And uh, anyway, so um, I said, well, listen, I don't know that I'm going to let you out of your contract with doing our preseason games. <laughs> and uh, people might not remember this. I said, look, it, we're going to play the St. Louis Rams, uh, the last preseason game of the year like we did most years, get somebody close in that. And I said, uh, I want you in the fourth quarter uh, to do a little commentary from the sideline as our Chiefs analyst. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, I'll do it. And, in fact, he did. He did. Uh, somewhere on tape, yeah. And uh, we had uh, one of our audio guys go over and with a, with a microphone, and, and obviously we had the uh, TV people on him. And uh, so we said in the fourth quarter, well, how do those Chiefs look for this coming season? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave a little commentary on that regarding that and, and also his uh, new St. Louis Rams. But, uh, um, yes, he was my first choice, and obviously uh, it took a while. But I eventually got the guy that I used to work for to come and work for me, uh, Dick's last five years as a head coach in the National Football League with the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, we'll get more into that, but I want to start also with your first pick ever for the Chiefs. My gosh, if you tell people the first draft pick you ever have for the Kansas City Chiefs is going to be one of the greatest players ever, a Hall of Famer, four of the first guys picked in that draft were Hall of Famers, Derek Thomas, the first ever. What did he mean for you and for the franchise? Well, it was essential that obviously we made the right choice. Um as I told Marty, I said, look, it, we're picking uh, fourth in the draft because of the preceding uh, regime's uh, ineptness, frankly, of, of, of not being very good. And I think they had won uh, two or three games the, the previous year. So uh, you and I, Marty, don't ever want to be in this position again, because if we are, we're probably out of work. But let's make it the right guy. And uh, we did our homework. We did our research. Uh to begin with, the obvious is I knew who I hired. I hired a defensive coach. Later, I hired an offensive coach by the name of Vermeil. But um, we had Neil Smith. We weren't quite sure how good he was. He was the number one draft choice. Uh, they actually moved up, second pick in the draft the year before. Had not really cer- certainly played to his potential yet. But we figured if we could get the other end and have uh, bookends we could create some problems with uh, uh, certainly the pass rush situation. And um, we, were, like I said, looked at a lot of players. But before the draft, uh, frankly, we had worked Derek out as we worked all the players out. Um, we're hopeful that he would still be there on the fourth pick. And it was uh, it was a concern because it got close. But everybody knew Aikman was going to go first and Barry Sanders second to Detroit. What was Green Bay going to do with the third pick? Not and, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we had some other guys there, uh, Deion Sanders and and another Thomas uh, linebacker at, at Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a pretty good draft. But um, the guy we wanted was Derek. Um, <clears throat> what did he meet to, mean to Kansas City? When I drafted him, I said, look, it, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something that you may not want to but I really want you to. I need you to come and live in Kansas City. I don't want you going back to Miami, which was his home, or Tuscaloosa, where he was a three-time All-American at Alabama. I said, I need you here. I need you to get involved in the community. We've got to give back to this community. We've got to win the community back. 
to love the Chiefs again because, frankly, what I had seen in, in my research was that the uh, uh, community of Kansas City didn't dislike the Chiefs. They were just apathetic towards them, apathetic, uh, did not really care. They won or lost, but they had lost for so long. Um, Bill Grigsby, if you remember the mm-hmm. great Grigsby, came into my office shortly after I took the job. Unannounced and just showing up probably, right? <laughs> Boisterous, knocking down the door. It was Bill. And uh, he said, hi, Carl, I'm Bill Grigsby. I said, Bill, I know who you are. You're a longtime announcer uh, for the uh, Chiefs, and I'm glad to meet you and see you. So I said, Bill, how bad is it? How is how bad is, is, is it with the community here? He said, well, let me tell you something. He said, this past December, as we're finishing another awful season, drove down to the uh, plaza with my uh, lovely wife, Fran, to dinner, took two club seat tickets out and put them on the outside of my windshield, hopefully that someone would come and take them. After dinner, we came back to the car, and he said, Carl, there were four more tickets on the windshield. <laughs> I said, that bad? He said, that bad. I said, hey, we've got our work to do. And I must tell you that Bill Grigsby was a big part of helping us turn it around. Uh, positive, uh, obviously uh, fun, uh, great humor, and uh, also great, great love and concern for the Chiefs. And he, uh, he and Len Dawson were, were still the two best guys. And at that time, Kevin Harlan to mm. uh, to announce the Chiefs. So, those are three changes I did not make. You know, when when you drafted Derek, say he got picked third by Green Bay, and they didn't go with Mandridge there. Who were you going to go with at number four? Well, like I said, then we're looking at, at probably uh, Barry Sanders. But he was uh, already gone at two. Yeah, excuse me, not but Deion, Deion Sanders. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, like I said, uh, Thomas, the uh, linebacker at Nebraska, was was an exceptionally good football player. Um, uh, the uh, the safety uh, from Wisconsin was available. They were probably in that draft class, uh, three or four Hall of Famers. Mm-hmm. But to your question, uh, do you know what you've got when you draft a player? You do all the research you can, uh, but you cannot get into a man's heart or his head. And um, you don't know how he's going to do when he takes that next step up. It, it's uh, It's a huge step from high school to college, major college, but it's even a bigger step from major college to the NFL. And, of course, uh, Derek just took off. I had seen him even before I knew I was going to be the uh, new president, GM of the Chiefs in in the fall. Uh, I still kept my hand in, in uh, scouting players. I went to the Iron Bowl in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, Auburn, Alabama game, and saw him... Uh, in one game, I think he had three sacks, two blocked field goal attempts, um, a blocked punt. He he was an extraordinary special teams player because he was so quick off off the mark, and um, just a, a marvelous player. As I said, and as I said, frankly, uh, when I um, I was very obviously proud to uh, uh, induct him into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, some years later, I said. Very few players in my career I've ever seen on the defensive side of the of the ball be able to be a game changer. Derek was. 
he was, and you have referred to him as your son, and I've, I've heard you say that a lot. How how was that bond created right away between you and Derek? Well, I think it was uh, just kind of a mutual uh, admiration, if you want to say, but uh, you don't want to get too close to a player. But he, as you know, lost his father, a B-52 uh, pilot in uh, Vietnam when he was two or three years old, so he never knew his dad. I never had a son. I had a beautiful daughter, and, and uh, she's given me two wonderful Scottish grandsons. They, they live in Edinburgh, Scotland. But So um, he would come up to my office, and he'd call me uh, father. And I uh, started kidding him. I said, well, I guess I have to call you son. But at that time, I was going with um, uh, Miss Lori Larson, became my wife. I said, but whatever you do, do not call Lori mother. <laughs> <laughs> But, of course, he had uh, a lovely mother that uh, followed his career and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, uh, he actually used to refer to Marty as the principal and me as the superintendent because if he had a problem or did something wrong or whatever, he knew he had to see either one or both of us. But, again, uh, just through the years, it became uh, a very close relationship. And... uh, I don't like to do that very often. Obviously, it was uh, exceedingly painful to, to lose him the way he uh, he died. But uh, it was exceedingly terrific to watch him grow and become the, the great player and the great philanthropic uh, person that he was. You know, Derek gave and gave and gave and gave. He uh, he had a heart as big as his body. And he um, he cared about the community. He gave back. I was on his original and still am today, a proud uh, board of directors of his third and long foundation. It's still going today. I'm really proud of that. I mean, it's how many years after his demise, but the uh, the, the board has done a great job. Betty Brown, Neil Smith has jumped in uh, to take uh, Derek's place as an active retired player uh, for the third and long foundation. But this is exactly what I had asked him to do <clears throat> after I drafted him. Need you to come to Kansas City and get involved. Let's get the people back on board. And um, he did it, and he did it with a gusto. You have a, a great smile on your face talking about him, like a genuine, like this. This is really like you know, you know, putting you in a good mood, I guess, to talk about Derek and and all the things that he did. And you mentioned about yeah. loving that community and coming here. And and when we started these podcasts, the whole genesis was people who do good for Kansas City. And you guys did good right away by getting the community to buy back into you, but also giving back to the community. And one of the things, quite honestly and quite frankly, to steer your line that I miss from Arrowhead is everybody's charities around the stadium and what they are involved in. How significant and important was that for you guys to do that to connect with the community as well? Well, it was essential. Like I said, uh, you know, when when the previous season to I came, they had 23,500 season ticket holders. And they tell me, and I was not at some of those games, but some of those games they had uh, as, as few as 12,000 people who uh, all had a great seat at the line of scrimmage because he would just get up and move to the line of scrimmage in the in the lower bowl of uh, Arrowhead Stadium, you, you know things had to change, um, uh, and and Derek was a big part of that. I I would share with you that um, one of the things that I put in every single player's contract that we drafted or signed after I came, and I know I did not make myself uh, popular with the agents, but I said, uh, uh, and here is an addendum I want you to sign to give us five gratis appearances each year that you're here with the Chiefs 
to uh, appear at charity events, YMCA, boys clubs, whatever it might be. Uh, but we want you to give back because this this is what we needed to do. And, you know, from that, like you said, we ended up with, I think, uh, in my tenure there, 30, 34 player foundations. Brenda Snezek did a great job for us as our community relations uh, person. She she helped these guys get 5013C set up and so forth. And what they found out that sometimes, obviously, they were reluctant to do this, but when they went out and they started getting involved in the community, they really enjoyed it. Of course, the agents all said, well, no, it won't be for gratis. You have to pay my, my client. I said, no, I just handed him a nice little signing bonus. That's part of his pay. I said, he's going to give back to us. And uh, like I said, the players bought in uh, pretty soon. Uh, every one of them seemed that they wanted some sort of foundation, you know, charity of their choice, whatever it might be. Um, football camps in the summer, uh, free football camps in that. And uh, frankly, the NFL assists with that. Uh, uh, and, and I was a part of that through the league office. But at the end of the day, it paid huge dividends. And, um, and again, I think the players, and you ask any of the ex-players, you know, Deron Cherry and these guys, they were thrilled to do that and are still doing it today with the Chiefs ambassadors. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because the Royals embraced that when they went on and won in 2014 and 2015. Anytime you needed something, boy, they were there for the community. How did you know to do that? Like, what, what gave you that signal to say, this is what we have to do in order to connect to the community because you you didn't just do it you blew it up to an amazing thing you know well again i think frankly my uh, experience in the united states football league when you had to build a, a new professional football league in in the in the spring uh, and you start with the first paper clip and the first hire and how do you get fans to say uh, yeah i want to go see the philadelphia stars play um but at, uh, at the same time uh Having been in Philadelphia, which is not the uh, the easiest community to uh, rally people, sure. Uh, other than uh, you know, I would share with you that some of our first games with the Eagles, Dick and I would walk off the field, and Dick would say, "You know, Carl, I saw more contact in the stands today than I saw on the field." <laughs> that tells you about Philly. Yeah, but it's a great city and uh, great people. You know, you just got to find a way to, to win their hearts. And when you do that, then then they're going to come and they're going to support you and and stay with you. But like I said, my experience of of uh, scouting every major college campus in the Midwest, it was easy to see how much they loved tailgating at the football game. So I said, Lamar, we got a twenty six thousand lot parking lot, and uh, it's about one third filled right now. We we need to fill it, and so. We did that. Our sales marketing people, they were creative, commercials and everything else. And uh, Marty did a marvelous job on the field, and we started off 8-7-1 and one mm-hmm. the first year. After like a 4-12 and 12 season the year before or something exactly, like that. Exactly, or 3-13. Yeah. The, uh, um, the other thing I did was, frankly, and I had done this with the, uh, the United States Football League, Philadelphia Stars, I did focus groups. Uh, I uh, uh, I surveyed, questionnaired the existing 23,000 season ticket holders in Kansas City. Um, I said, listen, what do you like about the Chiefs? 
What do you not like about the Chiefs? What What do you want to see changed? And what are you hoping for the Chiefs? And uh, succinctly, basically said, you can change everything except for those three announcers, Harlan and Dawson and uh, Grigsby. And uh, what do we hope for? We hope for just a 500% season, respectability back in the NFL, because there wasn't any. Mm-hmm. And uh, already won 8-7-1. and one. Right, it's better. <laughs> if, if we hadn't tied that game uh, and won it, we'd have been in the playoffs our very first year. But he got us there in the second year, and then we ran, what, seven in a row? Mm-hmm. But the um, again, building this with, with Kansas City was, was exciting and fun. I started something called the Chiefs Ambassadors. I said, look, it, and Buck Buchanan was our first president. I need to connect the past, the greatness of the past, because they were Super Bowl one, Super Bowl four, uh, with the present and the future. Gave them a, a tent, a, a, a party tent for their, you know, they each have businesses and so forth to bring their clients and that and be on the field and pre, pre-game and that. Travel with us uh, on road trips and that. But be proud again about being a Chiefs alumni. And uh, and it took off also. Walter White, Ted McKnight, Larry Marshall, uh, Buck Buchanan, Brad Buddy, or Ed Buddy, uh these guys, they all did a marvelous job and, and are continuing. Deron Cherry, uh, when he retired and that. So, you know, I think it's understanding the demographics that you live in. Mm-hmm. It might not be as successful in San Francisco or New York City. But for Kansas City, it worked. Yeah, you, you definitely have to understand where you are. Sometimes you think you can run the East Coast model in the Midwest, and it just doesn't work that way. Know. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So you hit the ground running, man. You guys are winning right away. Arrowhead becomes the place to be, and then you go out and get Marcus and Joe. Did you feel like when you made those moves, man? This is it. We are gonna get over the top, and we're going to the Super Bowl. Well, yes, obviously, uh, we had our first sellout the second second year, and then we sold out. I think another hundred and sixty consecutive games in, until I left in, in uh, after the 2008 season. But but at the end of the day, um, we couldn't get over the top with the quarterbacks that we had. And that's not taking anything away from Steve DeBerg. Steve did a great job and and that. People forget we had Ron Jaworski first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Webster was the center. I mean, we, we were reaching back. This was something called Plan B. This before... In 1993, we had the new collective bargaining agreement, which brought in free agency to the NFL. But I had made a decision sometime on that because most number one draft choice quarterbacks do not make it. If you look at the stats, they just don't make it. I'm not going to waste a number one draft choice on a, on a quarterback. If I'm going to waste a number one draft choice, I'm going to draft – Excuse me. I'm going to trade for a veteran, winning playoff quarterback. So came to that conclusion. Marty was all on board with it. Uh, we had Paul Hackett, who had actually coached Joe at the 49ers and and were running the West Coast offense. Uh, I knew, and Carmen Policy knew, the president of the 49ers, that I knew he could not keep both Joe and Steve Young, and uh, so I said. Which one would you like to trade? <laughs> well, obviously, 
he said, I'm not going to trade him, but uh, Joe would be the guy. So we worked it out. And uh, at that time, we were also recruiting for unrestricted free agency the first year, 1993, Marcus Allen, who we had seen too many times across the field for the Raiders. And he was leaving. There was no question about it. He and Al Davis have major falling out. And we were in the hunt, but we're not sure we could sign him. When I made the trade for Joe, got a call very next morning, and it was Marcus. He said, you got Joe? I said, we got Joe. He said, I've always wanted to play with Joe. I'm coming. I'm going to be a chief. I said, Marcus, we're going to be thrilled about that, and I know Joe will too, as well as the rest of our team. And so, yes, you know, those were two pieces in the puzzle that we thought could get us to where we wanted to go. And uh, Joe, at 37, 38 years old, the two years he was with us, he took us there. We got to the AFC Championship game. We went to the playoffs each year. We won playoff games. Marcus was extraordinary. I signed each of them to a three-year contract. And, of course, Joe uh, didn't get to the third year, which was a right decision for him. He'd had some concussions. It was time for him to step away. But Marcus played uh, five years for us. And... Uh, and you know how successful he was. The, the, the greatest short yardage, third down, uh, goal line uh, runner I've ever ever seen mm -hmm. uh, because he studied it, he knew it, he was smart. Uh, but at the end of the day, those two guys were pretty darn exciting for the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, obviously uh, we had been selling out, but now our merchandise sales went out, out, of, the, out of orbit. Yeah. Obviously for little Kansas City, we were the fourth or fifth smallest market in the NFL we're leading the league in merchandise sales. Wow. <laughs> Montana and, and uh, uh, Marcus Allen jerseys. And, and you still see them today. <laughs> exactly. Still see them today. You're you right. still see them today. So uh, you would have taken Steve Young or Joe Montana? Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, Steve was on his way up. And he, yeah. That, that was the year that Joe got hurt, and Steve came in, and he took him all the way to the championship game. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I had seen Steve Young play for the Los Angeles express in the united states football league right we played against him in the coliseum in front of probably nine thousand and five hundred and seventy two people <laughs> but the stars beat him we always yeah. we, you know we had jim moore senior was my head coach and we went to every championship game won the last two outright but um but i had seen uh steve play obviously and uh, uh they were in a pickle i knew that uh, and and with the salary cap now coming in, they just couldn't keep both of them. Mm -hmm. So able to work it out. Uh, and um, I know Joe, and I just uh, frankly talked to him. He's at the game, obviously. Uh, yeah. Sunday night, uh, he would tell you right now that he Joe and Jennifer enjoyed their two years in Kansas City as much as any two years they've ever enjoyed in in his professional football career. Um. Wonderful guy, wonderful family, and we uh, we had a lot of fun with that for, for two years. I'm just terribly sorry, like everybody, that he got injured in the second half at Buffalo. Bruce Smith took him down on a frozen tundra astroturf and gave him a concussion, and that was it. Uh, but I think if he'd have stayed healthy, we, we really had a chance to be in the Super Bowl that year. Do you do you look at that trade and think, boy, if we would have gotten Steve Young, we would have been set up for many years in the future? <laughs> or did you really want like Joe Montana because it was Joe Montana? Well, I, I just knew that uh, 
the only guy they would they would trade would be Joe. Yeah. Um, I would share with you this. People don't know this. After Carmen and I worked it out, Carmen policy, and boy, we knocked down. Carmen would call me and he say, "Carl, I'm a stubborn Sicilian, and I'm not given anything more." And I said, "Carmen, I'm a stubborn Swede, and I'm not given anything more. So if we got to get this done, let's decide what we can do." But once it was completed and done, and Joe knew he was coming to Kansas City, he got a call from Eddie DeBartolo Jr. And he said, and they'd see, they had already told him that he was going to be the backup. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, for Joe was the motivation to move on. Sure. And uh, Eddie said, forget about what was said before. I'm the owner. You'll be the starter. <laughs> 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 Honestly, goodness. And uh, it made Joe flinch for a moment, but Joe said, nope. He said, I've made the commitment. I'm going to Kansas City. And, uh, Eddie, I love you, and I appreciate all that you've done for me and my family and, and obviously what Joe did for he and the DeBartolo family. But, um, yeah, at, at the 11th hour, there was a, a pause. But uh, And you may have been getting Steve Young then, or they would have no, swapped it out? No, or no, 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 no. They were just going to avoid the trade completely. Yeah. And, uh, but, um, uh, you know, we brought him in immediately. Uh, I sat down with In fact, we had dinner. We did it over <laughs> Over dinner, we were all together on, on the plaza, Joe and Jennifer and my wife and I and Lamar and Norma, Tom Condon and uh, representing Joe and, and a few other people and um, worked out a new contract. You know that when you make a trade, it doesn't matter if you're trading, guy's got a contract coming to you, you're going to do a new contract. Sure. <laughs> and, and we were happy to do it. And Joe and Jennifer went out and found a home right away and bought it in Leewood and, and uh, just fell in love with Kansas City. So um, a lot of great Joe stories. The obvious is that uh, when we got him on board, I had to hire five, six more security people. Because this was like a rock star. Mm-hmm. Every place we went, you probably know that, on the road, unbelievable. And uh, Joe was marvelous patient with people on autographs you know he'd sign till the end of the 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 buses are honking the horns we got to go we got to get the charter home and he he had a great way of somehow terminating the the autographs and saying folks i'd love to do everybody but i'm sorry i can't and jump on the bus whereas some players you know they they're all over those players they're you've got to sign my son's autograph and you know i stood here for two hours or whatever anyway he had a marvelous way about him, and uh, players loved him, obviously. Offensive and defensive players loved him. Great practical joker in the locker room. Joe was really Joe. He was one of the guys. He was a, a team guy, and uh, we had a lot of fun. We did two um, American Bowl games in uh, Japan. Tim Grunhart would say, Oh, it's Joe. Joe Montana. Bigger than Buddha, bigger than Godzilla. Oh, it's Joe, <laughs> and the players would just go crazy. And of course, they never let him forget it. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he uh, he did bring a, a change. I think obviously for the people in Kansas City too, and in, in the mid midland of America. And I know this, I know this for certain, that my man Lamar Hunt was just thrilled to death with that, and so proud that his Chiefs now were being recognized not just in the midland of America, but all over the U.S. through the NFL. 
How much of the signing of Marcus Allen was because you love Marcus, but man, you wanted to take a swipe at the Raiders too? <laughs> well, you've hit my Achilles tendon, you know that. Yeah. Uh, well, I wish it was still like that, you know? <laughs> well, my dear friend, my late dear friend, Alvin Davis and I were certainly not good friends. Ironically, when I went to the, first of all, Philadelphia Eagles, we played them in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and they beat us, unfortunately. They had, we had beaten them earlier in the year. So when, when you're on the other side of the, the field, you're his enemy, without question. In the USFL, he became a real friend. I actually had dinner with him a few times. Now, we're playing opposite you know, uh, seasons in that. And he also, because he was an American Football League guy, like Lamar, you know, would say, Carl, I was in a Rebel League at one time, too. He says, I think it's great. People don't probably know this or remember it. Al Davis testified for the USFL versus the NFL. Oh, jeez, I didn't realize that. Of course, Al sued his partners uh, every year, (laughs) whatever it might be. But um, to get uh, Marcus... Uh, away from uh, Al and the Raiders, yes. I, I'll be honest right now that uh, there was certainly some motivation there. Probably one of the highlights that I remember, and I don't know if you were there, but Marcus Allen broke the uh, total offensive 10,000-yard record at the L.A. Coliseum in front of Al Davis as we're beating up on his L.A. Raiders at the time. And uh, I know it just killed Al. They stopped the game, the officials, and gave the ball to Marcus to take it over to uh, our sideline to put away for the Hall of Fame. And um, we had some great knockdown dragouts with them, and I don't think, I think uh, you know this, Marty's record was unbelievable against the Raiders. I mean, I think he was like 18-3. and three. Wow. And just he just, every year, owned them. And when Raider Week came, everybody, not in the locker room, not just in the locker room, but throughout the entire organization knew it because this was different from Marty. And I always asked Marty, I said, what is it with you and Al? I said, did he turn you down for a job or insult you or whatever? He said, I just don't want to talk about it, Carl. And he never did. But he did not like the Raiders. And uh, when we hired, uh, when Marty hired Art Shell who'd been fired by Al to come and be our offensive line coach. After the first Raider game, Art came up to me. He says, now, he said, now I understand why you guys got our number so much. He said, I've never seen the head coach like that. He says, does he get like that every time we play the Raiders? I said, it's absolutely. It's Raider week. You talk to any player uh, that was on our team when, when Marty was here, that was the beginning. Two games a year where – you better you better know your assignment and you better not screw up because the head coach wants to win this game. And so he was the one who really got the Raider Week stuff going. That it wasn't you and it wasn't Lamar. It was more you guys were taking your cues from Marty and all this. <laughs> well, certainly uh, he he was a stimulus, but you know that that Raider uh, Chiefs uh, thing went all the way back to uh, Len Dawson and, and mm-hmm. Otis Taylor and and. Uh, and that group, when they used to have some Donnie Brooks on the field and that. So it was always a great rivalry. Um, you know, over the past number of years, uh, it, it kind of dissipated to uh, the Broncos became a big, big game for us. But, but no, when Marty was here, 
Raider Week was big, twice a year in your regular season. And then, uh, again, some people forget, the first the first playoff game ever hosted at Arrowhead was with us against the Raiders, and we beat them 10-6 to here at uh, Arrowhead. So I know for Marty that was a real real plus for him. Do you think we'll ever get back to the days in the NFL where those rivalries are as magnified and as meaningful as they were back then? Because every time Raider Week rolls around now, it's like we're feigning, you know, oh, it's Raider Week and like yeah. that, because we all want it to be those kind of glory days. Well, I, I think, unfortunately, that's one of the uh, byproducts of uh, unrestricted free agency. You know, the players are not still the same. Uh, fans used to cheer as much for a player or their favorite player as they did their their favorite team. But with the movement of, of players, uh, so very, very few of them ever begin and end their their careers in one with one club. I think that, that dissipates uh, certainly the rivalries. Um, you know, uh, I remember growing up uh, as a Los Angeles Rams fan, and my dad was a season ticket holder with four sons, and he and my mom, we went every Sunday. The Rams played in the L.A. Coliseum. But, you know, Jaguar John Arnett and Vitamin T. Smith and Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch and, you know, all these guys. And, and they were they were pretty special. I'm sure just like Len Dawson and Otis Taylor and, like you said, Mike Garrett and mm-hmm. uh, Buck Buchanan and all these guys were for, for the Chiefs fans uh, before free agency. But... Uh, you know, those older Chiefs fans always remember Ben Davidson, you know, taking Lenny and putting him on his head or whatever, and then the, the two teams em- em- emptying the field and mm-hmm. going after it. Um, but I don't know if that will ever come back, to, certainly to the level or degree that it used to. You mentioned not wanting to waste that first-round draft pick on a quarterback because a lot of them do fail, and they do. And I went back through just about every draft – that you, you had from when you took over the Chiefs to when you left the Chiefs. I looked at every quarterback that was drafted in that time frame, and obviously Trey when you never had a chance at. There were not many guys in those drafts, in those 20 years, that you look at and say, boy, the Chiefs should have drafted that guy. Now, you, you had a second-round pick in, in Brett Favre, he got through, but like just looking at the top quarterbacks drafted the time you were running the franchise, there really weren't many. Did you ever have that mindset of, we have to now get that next quarterback like the Chiefs have now with Patrick Mahomes? Well, like I said, yes. I mean, we that's why we reached out and got Joe. Mm-hmm. And then, frankly, uh, a few years later... Uh, reached out with a number one draft choice and got a guy by the name of Trent Green mm-hmm. who came in and helped uh, Dick and Dick knew a lot about him having and so forth and took us to the first, second, third offense every year he was with us. I mean, uh, um, yes, you know, you still have to have that guy under the center. I, I, obviously this year the Chiefs have proven it and as, as, as difficult as that loss was on Sunday uh, to the Patriots, the future is is bright for the Chiefs because of number one Patrick Mahomes, mm-hmm. but um, knowing that you know, I always felt if you're picking in the first ten picks, you should be able to find a player that is going to be not just a starter for you, but a, but a great player, hopefully a Pro Bowl player, whatever. And um, as you said, in that time, I never saw. If you want to call it, I don't like the word, but franchise quarterback, 
in those first ten picks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys weren't picking high either a lot of the years too. When you, that's just, that's you know that's that's the byproduct also of of a success in the NFL. It it's the uh, they're always trying to tear down the top teams and build up the bottom teams. That's the emphasis on competitiveness, parity. Some people call it, but also, frankly, one of the great things in the NFL. The worst teams get to draft first, and yeah, by the time uh, uh, we were drafting after the f- first second year, we're, we're drafting twenty first, twenty second, twenty third, twenty seventh, whatever. And uh, I've always felt then, you know, there's a big difference between the first ten picks, the next ten picks, and the bottom ten picks in the NFL in each round. And if you're picking, you know, twenty five to thirty two or Whatever uh, in the uh, uh, first round, you're you're very possibly picking a second rounder, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even a third rounder. So, um, it's 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 not a science. It's uh, it's humans evaluating and then selecting humans, and there is human error, and I certainly had my share of them. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, my job I've always felt when I put on my GM's hat was to give my head coach what he needed to win and it begins with players good players players that want to be coached players that can get better develop and so forth um beside giving him the staff he wants support football staff facilities and then like i said an environment that he wants to coach in his coaches want his players want to play in and that's why we worked hard to make arrowhead uh, the loudest stadium in the NFL. In those 20 years you were running the Chiefs, was there ever a quarterback that you looked at in the draft that you really, really, really coveted and wanted and thought could have been a game-changer franchise quarterback? Well, I'm sure there there was, but um, obviously we, we just didn't have any opportunity to trade up to get him. Um, you know, trading up is a difficult thing in the NFL. Uh, you've got to find a willing partner that wants to do that. A guy right now that uh, hopefully will be uh, next Saturday, a week from Saturday, uh, given a phone call or knock on his door that he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, Tony Gonzalez. You know, I traded from the 18th to the 13th pick to get him, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and obviously it turned out to be without question the, the best move. But again, though, those first round quarterbacks concern me. Um, uh, I wish we had probably maybe gone a little bit more with uh, Drew Brees, even though he was a second-round pick. I mean, he's obviously proved to be well, well beyond where he was drafted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get caught up in uh, statistics, and you can't do that because height, weight, and speed is, are indices, but they're not necessarily the deciding factor. I can tell you today, Drew Brees is not six foot tall, <laughs> but he plays like he's six foot four. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few other people, a quarterback at, at uh, uh, Seattle, the same way. Um, but I uh, obviously Manning, uh, when he came out, uh, he was one I really thought was extraordinary, extraordinarily special, and I knew his family very well, having coached, played against his. Uh, Father Archie and and his knew his mother Elizabeth and his brothers, uh, and then uh, as of late, and of course I was out of the league then. But uh, Andrew Luck, 
uh, Oliver Lux, a long, long time dear friend. Mm -hmm. and, uh, frankly, scared the heck out of me that they're coming in <laughs> to play a couple weeks ago. I didn't go to the stadium to watch the game because I was 0-3 against those damn Colts in yeah. the playoffs. And uh, it worked. <laughs> Maybe I should have stayed away on Sunday against uh, uh, the Patriots. But, um, again, I think the future is really bright for the uh, for the Chiefs. It begins with Patrick Mahomes. Obviously, there's some things they've got to address, and, and they will. Andy's a very bright and talented head football coach and a dear friend, 35-year friend. I wish them only the best. When you uh, were running the USFL, that's kind of in my heyday when I was growing up. I grew up a Generals fan because we couldn't get tickets to the Giants, <laughs> and so we, I became a Generals fan. I, I just loved watching the USFL, right? It was a lot of fun. Obviously a big rival to you guys. You guys yep. dominated, and I'm having a lot of fun reading the, the USFL book that is out right now, right? Yeah. And it's bringing me back to my childhood. But I, I see the, the New Jersey Generals, and knew this, were run by our president, Donald Trump, at the time. And I'm reading a lot of stuff about the Generals and the USFL. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing a lot of the same thing going on right now. Like, he said, I'm going to get Doug Flutie, and the rest of the USFL is going to pay for him. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, that sounds like something I've heard before. And then you see um, And him, we didn't pay for Doug Flutie. <laughs> you didn't pay for Doug Flutie. Um, he had a big voice in that league. Why did Donald Trump have such a big voice in that league? And what was it like working with him? Before he became the you know the president of the United States, well, he's what we call the Donald. Um, I'll be very candid. I, first of all, I better prefaces. He's a friend. He's been a longtime friend. Uh, he's been uh, right or wrong a big admirer of mine. Always uh, introduces me uh, for him as the smartest football executive I've ever known. <laughs> anyway, but. Um, we called him at that time Ready, Fire, Aim Donald, and that's what he is. He's a New York real estate developer and obviously very good at it. Um, when he got the team, he came in our second year with the Generals. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, he had Herschel Walker. He said, I'm going to get Doug Flutie, and he did. Uh, they had some real stars on that team. But um, I would share with you, that he would always ask me, Carl, I have the most expensive payroll in the USFL. I have the biggest stars, Herschel and Doug, all these guys. I'm paying them lots of money. How can you, with your Philadelphia stars, Baltimore stars, our, our third year, continue to beat and own us in not only the regular season, but the postseason? Because we always seem to play the the generals in the postseason too. I said, well, Donald, let me tell you about this game. It's called football. It's not the individual parts. It's the sum of the individual parts put together in a cohesive manner, all going for a collective endeavor. It's called teamwork. You say, Carl, yes, I know about that, but how can you, with the smallest payroll, beat us who have the largest payroll. <laughs> it just went over his head, obviously. He's a unique individual. Um, he obviously has his own way of doing things, certainly has kept uh, our nation's capital on their toes uh, from the moment he uh, was elected president of the United States. I am wishing him well. Um, I, uh, I'll be candid. Of the two candidates, I thought he was 
if you want to say the lesser of the two evils. Um, I'm I'm disappointed, like everyone, that it's not just only Donald, but there cannot be more compromise. I don't know why people have uh, all of a sudden discarded that word on party lines, but to get things done. I have hope. I have hope for an individual. Um, I guess I can say that. My dad was a Republican. I'm a Republican, always have been. But one Democrat that I do support, that I send contributions to every two years, was a, a man that I have the absolute total respect for, Reverend Emmanuel Cleaver, um, representing the district that I live in, mm-hmm. frankly. he, um, I campaigned for him with Bill Grigsby for him to be mayor twice, and I thought he was a marvelous mayor for the city of Kansas City. I campaigned for him to become a uh, congressman. And um, I am very close to him. He married my lovely wife, Lori, and I. I always call him the Reverend Mayor. Um, but he's one person in Washington that I know. And Kit Bond was the same way. He's retired now. But is not afraid to cross the aisle to get done what needs to be got, get done and, and to do it the right way. So I'm I'm going to be optimistic that there will be more Emmanuel Cleavers in, in our Congress, in our Senate, in the years to come, um, it's uh, obviously that our government's changed, but hopefully it's still the same great government because it is the greatest country in the world, and I've been all over the world and uh, can testify to that. And I, uh, I'm wishing our president the best as well as our Senate and our Congress and uh, and our Supreme Court. So... End of political speech yeah. regarding Donald Duck Trump. <laughs> what was your favorite USFL story? Like, I love telling this story about the USFL because it was so wild and zany and bizarre. <laughs> well, there, there was a lot of things, you know. I mean, it was it was a challenge. It was fun. It was exciting. Uh, building it, watching it grow, uh, helping it grow in, in whatever way we could. Um we made a mistake, and, and I have to give Donald a lot of credit for that, unfortunately, of um, taking the league far too quickly. We had a five-year plan to stay in the in the spring and then see where we were. You know, you have to crawl before you walk, before you run, but mm-hmm. Donald wanted to move after three years to the fall and go head-to-head with the NFL. And having been in the NFL, I knew that was folly. That was not going to end well, uh, which it didn't for the USFL. But there's a, a thousand stories. Um, probably the story that, that gives me the greatest pleasure is, is uh, a player that played for us by the name of Sam Mills. Oh, great player. God. And uh, a guy that had been rejected, cut by the NFL uh, twice in Canada once. Um, I got a call from Sam Ritigliano, who was the head coach at the Cleveland Browns at that time, and said, Carl, we're cutting a guy at the end of training camp here in Cleveland. And I think the only reason we're cutting him is because I don't think he's maybe even five foot nine. He said, I would suggest you sign him with your new league. He was from uh, Glassboro State uh, in, in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was close to his home. And he said, I'm going to have him contact you, and I think you should sign him and take him into your league because I think he's a hell of a football player. 
And whatever you do, do not cut him until you see him hit, until he puts the pads on. Sam, I appreciate it. And I had a number of calls from head coaches. Chuck Fusina, Bill Walsh called me about that. What a great acquisition that was for us as our quarterback for all three years here and so forth. So Sam comes, and he was maybe 5'9", but uh, great personality in that. Signed him at that time. George Perlis was my head coach. And this is in the fall of uh, 1982, and we're going to open the season in spring of 83. We have a mini camp. we got got 100 guys out there trying to make the team, if you will, at that time. We finish the mini camp th- two days. Uh, we have a coaches team meeting, and uh, George says, Carl, uh, we can't play with a five foot nine middle linebacker. It's just you know this is professional football, and it just can't do it. George came to us; he was the defensive coordinator of the Pittsburgh Steelers. George knows what's. I said, George, I hear what you're talking about. I hear what you're saying, but we're not going to cut him till we see him hit. I said. Mini camp is running around your underwear. I said, when we go to training camp, we'll make that decision. Well, then George leaves me in the lurch, if you want to say, in December. He got the head job at his alma mater, Michigan State. Had to go. I said, George, follow your heart. Not a problem. So I'm out scrambling, but I hire a guy that I coached with and knew very well. We were at UCLA together under Dick Vermeil, Jim Mora, senior. who was a defensive coordinator at New England. And... uh Jim, surprisingly, but thankfully, took the job. We uh, have a uh, mini camp early January before we're going to go to a training camp in late January in, so- in South Florida. But mini camps up in Philadelphia. Bring all the guys in in that two-day mini camp, finish it. We get to uh, uh, the team meeting, the coaches meeting in that. Jim says, Carl, we can't have a five foot nine middle linebacker. This is professional football, and he's just not big enough. I said, Jim, I hear what you're saying, but we're not going to cut him until we see him hit. End of January, we all go to training camp at Stetson University, DeLand, Florida, and we start contact. And um, our defensive coordinator is um, Vince Tobin. Missouri guy, mm-hmm. been in Canada. And I always had our coaches rank and rate the players every day after two practice sessions. Every single day, Vince Tobin rated Sam Mills number one, without question. And Jim saw it also, Mora. We start the season, we're playing the New Jersey Generals, Herschel Walker. They've got a first and goal on our five-yard line. Three consecutive stops, Sam Mills hits Herschel Walker. And it was like Herschel hit a fire plug. He just stopped dead. Wow. Um, We knew then what we had. We had the defensive player of the USFL. Basically, every year he was the defensive player of the USFL. Sam Mills, when uh, the league... uh, Came apart. Jim Moore got the head job of the New Orleans Saints. Saints. He takes him right away to uh, uh, the Saints in New Orleans. Starts. Goes to five Pro Bowls. Plays in one of the greatest 
uh, quartet of linebackers mm-hmm. swilling and uh, these guys and so forth. At one time, all four of them, all four linebackers were elected to the Pro Bowl. That's how dominating they were. But Sam was the leader. When I hired Marty Schottenheimer, I said, Marty, let's go back in our careers a little bit. I said, you were with uh, Sam Ritigliano, right? I said, yeah, he was my head coach. He hired me. I was a defensive coordinator. And he said, I succeeded him. As we know, when, when uh, Sam got fired at, at Cleveland, Marty became the head coach. I said, um, defensive coordinator, do you remember a guy by the name of Sam Mills? <laughs> he goes, oh, God, you've got me there. He said, <laughs> I cut him, and I said, I, the rest is history. I said, I know. And Marty says, you're not going to hold this against me about getting the job with the Chiefs, are you? Yeah. I said, no. I so said, you're not going to have any say in player personnel. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Marty shot an arrow and cut him, and that. Sam Mills' story is, is I think, you know, one of the great ones of, of the USFL. There, there are so many others. And, uh, but it was, uh, I think, every single player, including I think there are four or five NFL can Football Hall of Famers that started their careers in the USFL. Uh, Steve Young mm-hmm. talked about um, Jim Kelly, Reggie White, um, uh, Zimmerman, the great offensive lineman for Minnesota and so forth. But it doesn't matter if they were a star, a number one draft choice in our in our draft, or a uh, guy trying to make it for the third and last time in his pro career. It brings a smile to everybody's face every time you say USFL. It does. No, I'm, not, I'm and, with and you. You're, yeah. you're a fan. Yeah. And uh, we built a young fan base. We really pushed hard that the NFL was a not-for-fun league, and yeah. we were. <laughs> it was. It was great. I'm sorry it never lasted you know, longer I know. than it did. It yeah, was like, three oh. years, and if we stayed the original plan, I think it it may still be uh, in existence today. But, what um, What is your all-time favorite Dick Vermeil story? Oh, there's too many of those. Uh, you know, going back to UCLA, uh Upsetting the number one undefeated team in in the college uh, at that time, Woody Hayes, uh, Ohio State Buckeyes, who had beat us earlier in the year badly in in the L.A. Coliseum, and then we played them in the Rose Bowl. And I think today UCLA is is still the largest underdog to ever win in the uh, Rose Bowl game, 105 games in that, but probably one of the the best was the miracle of the Meadowlands. And this was our third year, and we were just turning the corner uh, with the Eagles. We're playing at the Giants. The Giants have got us. Uh, we're out of timeouts. Uh, they just got to kneel down three times, and the game's over with. Dick's back on the bench with Jaworski and Car- Harold Carmichael talking about you know the Hail Mary pass, and Harold was 6'5", and so forth. Like we're ever going to get to the Hail Mary pass, you know they get they kneel down three times. Right. I'm on the sideline, uh, even as a personnel director. I'm still signaling for Dick. At, when I was at UCLA, beside coaching the receivers and that, I always was a signal guy to the quarterback. And uh, so I'm standing on the sideline watching this, you know, feeling awful like everybody else. We're going to lose this game. And the first play, uh, uh, they hand the ball to Zonka. And uh, Frank Lamassa, our linebacker, comes in and cold cocks him. Okay, well that pissed everybody off, obviously, with the Giants. 
So obviously the offensive coordinator uh, upstairs is, uh, and Joe Pizarchik was the quarterback, mm-hmm. uh, runs Zonk again. We're going to take it to the Chiefs. And uh, rather than just give up, and we go drop to a knee. So Joe did a reverse pivot. Uh, I'm not sure why they call that play, and put it on Zonka's hip. Well, of course, the ball went on the ground, and Herm Edwards is coming in as one of our corners, takes the ball on one bounce and goes into the end zone, and the place goes crazy. Well, it doesn't go crazy. The place goes silent because we're at the Meadowlands. Right. People have been filing out. They think, and it just, boom, just completely stopped. Dick turns around. He never saw the play. He says, good God, what happened? I said, we won. We won. He said, we couldn't have won. There's no way. All ahead of Dick, you won't believe what you see on the video, but we won. And uh, it was the most exciting thing. It, it turned our season. We ended up 9-7, and seven, went to our first playoffs. This is our third year with the Chiefs. And by year five, we're in the Super Bowl. Yeah. But uh, that game, the Miracle of the Meadowlands, was uh, – one that Dick never saw the play until, obviously, later. And uh, uh, I traded for Joe Prezarczyk the next year for a sixth-round pick because I knew the Giants had to get rid of him. For sure. And when he came to training camp, the first day, as he came down, we had a staircase that brought us down to the lower field at, at Westchester College. Our entire team stood up and gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Uh, uh, great story, and, and uh, he and Jaworski became our two Polish quarterbacks and did a great job for us. But um, Dick Dick was the absolute finest football coach I've been around. I've been around a lot of, a lot of them. But from one end, one end of the spectrum to the other, every single player, every single coach, every single staff, every single person I think that's ever met Dick Vermeil loves him. And as loyal to him as I will always be to him, and he will always be to me and everybody else that he's ever touched. So, um, I think, uh, without question, is deserved, well deserving of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and it's my goal to get him there. You know, it's it's great because he he was wonderful, even me. You know, we still have a relationship where we talk all the time, and a yep. lot of times it's about wine or whatever. I mean, he yep. was a genuine, true human being. Where a lot of times in sports today, you know, that just isn't the case anymore. You don't have those relationships anymore, no. and that's unfortunate. You know, it is. And Dick is magnificent about keeping all his. I don't know how he because he keeps in contact with so many players and coaches. Uh, retired out of the league and so forth um he's just a uh, consummate uh, great human being beside being a hell of a football coach and uh they took three different teams in the nfl bad teams to uh, division championships playoffs two of them to uh, conference championships two of them to the super bowl and he won a super bowl very few head coaches have ever done that in the history of the NFL. So it wasn't hard to get him to come to Kansas City that final time, was it? <laughs> after he took that year off after St. Louis, that was probably a little bit easier to get him to come back. It, it was. Uh, we had to convince his wife, Carol. We called her St. Carol because mm-hmm. she, she figured he'd had enough. They were riding into the sunset with a Super Bowl win and all that. But um, he, um, he also came for a reason and uh, – it goes back to probably the first question you asked me. In those eight years that he did our preseason games, he got to know Lamar and Norma Hunt really well. And uh, in this business, you don't get a chance to uh, 
always choose the owners. You can turn a job down. But but he knew Lamar and Norma, and uh, he was comfortable with them and wanted to work for them. And he said the same thing I have many times. The biggest disappointment that he had with the Chiefs, the same as mine, is that we never got to hand the trophy with his name on it to Lamar Hunt. Mm-hmm. How's the wine business? Good. We just got our yearly report, and uh, uh, sales are up a little bit. Uh, we're up to uh, about 4,500 uh, cases a year. But uh, most importantly, it's where Dick's coaching again. He loves it. He goes out for in uh, September, October for the picking of the grapes and the crushing of the grapes. And uh, he's all over the country uh, selling uh, our wine with uh, wine tastings and wine dinners and so forth. In fact, I would share with you that uh, Tuesday night, was that last night, night before last, uh, he did a uh, wine tasting dinner at Mar Largo in Palm Beach, Florida. With uh, We have dear friends that are members there, and they set that up. And uh, anyway... Uh, I would report that our president was not there, though. Yeah, not there. <laughs> What's next for you now? Well, I'm I'm uh, still doing a few things for the commissioner, uh, as you know. I you're fix I left, the officiating. <laughs> no, I uh, I'm not going to get involved in that. It's uh, too controversial. But um, uh, as you know, when I when I left the Chiefs, uh, the commissioner called me to New York and said, "I've got a job for you." And I said, "What's that?" He said, "I'd like you to replace." Um, our, our chairman of uh, USA Football, and uh, I said, uh, well, I'd be happy to do that, and, you know, how long is the job? He says, it's as long as you want it, and so forth. So I did that for seven and a half years, and I, I really enjoyed that. It was my opportunity to give back to the great game that, that was so good for me and to me, and um, uh, we, we grew it from... Uh, uh, a six seven million dollar uh, not for profit business to thirty four thirty five when I left uh, from uh, fifteen employees to almost seventy five uh, but more importantly, teaching the youth in this country how to tackle properly and how to block properly, taking your head out of the game to reduce the concussions, which is obviously the biggest concern of any parent to have their son or daughter play uh, football. But um, been on a couple of committees for the commissioner uh, this last uh, four or five years. The uh, one I really enjoyed with Bill Polium and Tony Dungy and John Madden is uh, we're kind of the commissioner's executive search firm each year for potential head coaches and potential general managers in the NFL. Because as you know, that coaching carousel and GM turns every year. This year was eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Um, also uh, on a committee for uh, looking at a developmental league for the NFL. The NFL made a big mistake, and I told them that they did when, when I was there because I was on the executive committee of the NFL Europe League. We needed a place to develop young players. Uh, Kurt Warner was the poster child of, of the uh, NFL Europe League. But we are we the Chiefs. Uh, uh, Brian Waters... Dante Hall, they never would have been in the NFL without that extra year to go and, mm-hmm. and, and play in the NFL Europe League. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm doing that, and uh, I'm enjoying uh, 
our time when we come back to Kansas City. My wife's mother still uh, lives in the area. She's in Kansas, 94 years young. And wow. In an assisted living home, but doing good, and her brother's here and family. So I married a Kansas girl, so I still have roots here, and I'll always consider Kansas City home. Um, and then we're on something called the World Ship, which is a lot of fun, and we get on and off sailing the world, and we own a a unit, a condominium on that, and it's uh, you own a condo on a boat, one of a kind. It's an all condominium ship. It's called the World. You can look it up and Google, but. Um, it's uh, something I looked at when I was with the Chiefs, but I knew I couldn't devote the time to it. Uh, but now uh, we can. And uh, so I'm still being active. I'm, I'm certainly not retired. I'm on a, a few boards, uh, uh, trustees, and World War II, uh, Nat- uh, National World War II Museum in New Orleans, and uh, mm. uh, a couple sports uh, entities, uh, technological uh, uh, companies. So, and I'm uh, still cheering like hell for the Chiefs, and always will, as well as uh, Andy Reid, like I said, a 35-year friend. Um, Actually, uh, text with him after every game. Haven't texted him about uh, Sunday's game yet. I'd give him a little time to breathe and and that. But uh, as I said, I'm, I'm really... Excited and optimistic for the future of the Chiefs, uh, obviously, like everyone, because of that quarterback. But they've got some great talent. John Dorsey did a terrific job. Another longtime dear friend doing the same thing now at Cleveland. So I keep my uh, relationships with coaches and executives uh, from the league office to the 32 league teams. Thanks, Carl. Bob, my pleasure. And I enjoyed it very much. Thank you guys for being here to assist uh, this old uh, chief in uh, some fond memories. I hope you guys enjoyed that chat with Carl Peterson, kind of going down memory lane and letting us in on a little uh, information we may not have had before. We heard that conversation. How interesting was it that Steve Young almost became a member of the Kansas City Chiefs and Drew Brees could have been the quarterback for the franchise for the last 20 years. Whether you love him or you hate him, you know that Carl Peterson did so many good things for the Kansas City Chiefs, and without him, the legacy of the Chiefs wouldn't be what it is today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.